The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Seizing the Precision Care Moment in MDS, Collaborative Strategies for Accurate Diagnoses and Risk-Adapted Treatment. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash UKX860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, you're in the session Seizing the Precision Care Moment in MDS. And today we have Dr. Rami Kamrokji and myself, Cecilia Young. Thank you. I'm going to begin now without further ado um, for the pathologist section in the very beginning where we're going to overview some introduction slides. And this section is called Pathologist-Led Starting Point for Team-Based Care. And my name is Cecilia Young. I'm an associate professor in the Translational Science and Therapeutic Division at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center. And our goals for today is to equip you with the clinical knowledge to inform diagnostic process and personalized care of MDS, and to share testing strategies to establish the diagnosis of MDS and specific subtypes. And also, hopefully, we can provide you with the skills you need to develop collaborative and contemporary treatment options for your patients with MDS. So first, I wanted to go through the history and of the progress that we have seen in MDS, starting with the International Prognostic Scoring System back in 1997. Thereafter, we had our first drug, azacitidine, that was approved in 2004. Shortly thereafter, lenalidomide, which is an immune modulatory treatment. And then the second hypomethylating agent decided to be approved by the FDA in 2006. And then really there was a hiatus without a lot of treatment that was available for MDS patients until lupatacep, which was approved in 2020. Um, and in that same year, cetazurazine was approved in combination with decitabine. And so really not a lot of treatment options, but we at least now do have some drugs that we can treat our MDS patients with. And there's actually quite a, quite a lot of excitement um, in the field over here where there's quite a number of um, targeted therapeutic options that are now in clinical studies that could become available very soon. And so along the way, though, there's also been some modification to the international prognostic scoring system with a revision to the IPSS in um, a little bit uh, in about 19, uh, in 2013 or so. But really the most exciting is recently in 2022 approximately with the revision um, adding a molecular um, information into the IPSS with the publication of the IPSSM. And um, Rami will be discussing that later today. However, despite these recent advances, there is a need for better risk-adapted treatment strategies. In the Connect Myeloid Disease Registry, this is a registry comprising of 500 or um, plus cases, about over 60% of patients with low-risk MDS were diagnosed with moderate to severe anemia. And many of these patients with such severe anemia really received no treatments and supportive care only. And 90% of these patients did not progress, though, to date, and the mortality of half of these patients was directly related to their disease still. And SEER assessed a large cohort, greater than 42,000 patients, in the hazards ratios and the median overall survival was 11.6 months. The median time to AML was 19.4 months. So there is a need to address this. However, there is a challenge to MDS diagnosis, as we all know. 
both in the low-grade side of this as well as the high-grade. In the low-grade side, there are overlaps between the non-neoplastic causes of cytopenia, where there is overlap between the um, between the other neoplasms. So does the patient truly have MDS, or is there a confounding cause? Is it CHIP or CCUS? And now there are um, criteria that we'll discuss later. And then also, should the patient actually be treated for their myelodysplastic syndrome? And then within MDS, there are other subcategories, which we will describe later on today. And then there are high-grade, the overlap between MDS and AML. And then um, Rami will discuss a little bit later about treatment options at that point. And then in the recent WHO updated address on classification and the gaps, uh, what the WHO tried to do was reconsider the nomenclature and really draw boundaries around MDS, particularly those related to CCUS and AML. Also recognize molecularly defined categories and also the recognition of a hypoplastic MDS. And also reorganization of the schema and so this is what we mean, and now so here is a cons comparison of the international consensus classification um, to the WHO classification. So in the ICC, and they're in the grand scheme of things, they're quite similar. So um, for the entities that have lower blast counts, this means less than 5% blast in the bone marrow and less than 2% in the peripheral blood. We have the entities um, that we are talking about today, uh, low blast, and SF3B1, and in the ICC, it is just called mutated SF3B1. There's also the isolated uh, 5Q minus syndrome and uh, MDS with biallelic TP53 inactivation on this side. And then we, in the ICC, they have retained the nomenclature of single lineage dysplasia and multilineage dysplasia, where the WHO has pretty much um, lumped the single and multilineage together. And then we have those with higher blasts. Now, this in the next slide, I'll go into a little bit more about the comparison because this is where the blast counts actually change, um, and there's a difference between the two classification system. Um, however, the hypoplastic um, category is new here, and then there is an additional category of increased blasts. The WHO further su subclassifies um, IB1 and IB2, and then there is also a new category of fibrosis here. And so the ICC has the MDS AML category, which has lumped anything above 10%. And then the other category of mutated TP53 here, it, this one kind of matches this one, the biallelic TP53. And we will talk a little bit about why the TP53s are separated and what the meaning of um, multiple hit TP53 or biallelic TP53, and what the significance of specifically calling out the biallelics are. Okay, so this slide specifically addresses the question of increased blasts and the differences between the two classification system. So the WHO um, over here separates the IB1 versus the IB2. In the WHO, they classify 5 to 9% be on the bone marrow, or 2 to 4% in the peripheral blood, whereas in IB2, uh, it's 10% uh, to 19% in the bone marrow, to 5 to 19% in the peripheral blood, or the presence of all rods. Whereas in the ICC, they look at anywhere between 
10 to 19 percent. However, they also identify cytogenetics abnormality in addition to mutations specifically in this category. And so there's a slight difference in the specific blast count, and depending on which system your institution uses, I would recommend that you clarify whether you are calling um, which entity and by which classification system. I don't know if this is fully resolved at this point, and there's still some confusion in the field. Um, there is data um, that hopefully will address this um, coming out. So the new categories in the WHO include an, a section of clonal hematopoiesis that addresses um, clonal hematopoiesis as well as those with persistent cytopenia, and we'll cover this a little bit in the next slide. There's also an area, a new uh, category addressing childhood um, uh, cytopenias, right here, myelodysplastic syndromes. And so in the differentials of myelodysplastic syndrome as we think about it, and this is really as we're considering um, somewhere in the benign versus MDS category, what are the things that you should be thinking about? And this is, of course, the nutritional deficiencies. And personally, I find this to be one of the most challenging differentials to get through. And um, having to go back into the history, look at nutritional deficiencies, ancillary laboratory tests, what is the iron levels, what is if there was B12, folic acid, there's copper zinc exposure, medications, um, infections, autoimmune diseases, um, anaplastic anemia history, other types of toxic exposures and metabolic disorders. Now for CCUS, the definition of this is having a chip clone detected and when there is a presence of persistent unexplained cytopenias. We typically want to look at the persistent of this chip clone at greater than 2% variant allele frequency. Um, the harmonized cytopenia definition uh, for these entities are listed here, and I won't belabor the point because this is um, published and well-known, but it's here for your reference. Um, for the different myelodysplastic syndrome, this is what was um, we put up at first for the uh, WHO categories, and again, we separated it into the genetic abnormalities in the 5Q minus, SF3B1, and the biallelic TP53, and the morphologically defined. Here, again, we have the blast count um, requirements, the cytogenetics, and the mutations. Here, I've highlighted, so variant allele frequency. So the SF3B1 mutation should be at a 5% VAF um, in order to qualify for this entity. So just a small point of clarification there. So a summary of the main changes in the new um, classification systems is that myelodysplastic syndrome has a new nomenclature, myelodysplastic neoplasm. However, um, the abbreviations should still be MDS. Um, the MDS genetic subtypes of 5Q-, SF3B1, and TP53 have been pulled out for specific reasons, um, and I'm going to cover that in uh, the next section here. The former MDS with MPM1 and MECOM arrangements are now defined as AML. Hypoplastic MDS is recognized as a distinct disease subtype. MDS with low blast, it was a new term that is, um, that was developed to try to enhance clarity. 
MDS with increased blast is a new term that also tried to enhance clarity. However, um, there is some caution here because the WHO versus ICC has some differences, um, that, as I have highlighted. And there are terminology of childhood MDS subtypes is now updated, and there is a specific subcategory. And then single lineage versus multi-lineage, again, this is retained in the ICC um, classification, not in the WHO. So now I'm going to go into the next um, section where I cover the data on the mutational testing. So, you know, when we get our patients, typically they would have a pretty nice history. They would have their CBC labs already done and a couple of older lab sets already pre-done. However, by the time we get the marrow for morphology, um, you know, we would get the aspirates, touch preps, clot preparation, bone marrow biopsy. In addition to that, um, in your institutions, you may already have a flow cytometry study um, that you can look at. And for that, there's either um, a baseline, if it's a de novo, it could be a follow-up. However, other studies that you should be looking at include an cytogenetics, hopefully on every single case, and then molecular study, depending on um, your institution and also the pathways in our system. We have molecular studies at the original diagnosis or else also when the patient first come and if they did not have previous molecular studies. And for molecular, this could be a DNA or an RNA-based panel, um, depending on the specific disease subtype. And in terms of clonal and driver mutations that we look at in MDS, greater than 90% of myelodysplastic patients will have um, a mutation, and the most common being um, SF3B1 and followed by TET2. This is, these are the most common mutations that are identified in, in MDS cases here, and this is um, published, and here's the uh, publication down here, but I won't belabor every single gene here. So we have quite a bit more to go through. However, what's important here, and I think this is a critical study here, um, in looking at the number of mutations and survival. So patients who have more than six driver mutations actually have a very poor survival. And so this is really important to highlight here in this red line. However, patients that have four to five driver mutations, they don't fare too well at all. What's curious is that when patients have one driver mutation or no driver mutation, they're, they're kind of up here. And so greater than three um, somatic mutations is in the purple line, three, four, five, and six. Um, so the overall survival of the patients um, for, uh, for our myelodysplastic patients are actually quite critical. And so I would say that molecular testing in your MDS patients is very important. And... Specifically for SF3B1 mutations, if you see that in isolation or with one other mutation, um, it actually is very favorable and um, should be highlighted. And so SF3B1 is a spicosome gene and is considered an initiating event in the development of myelodysplastic syndrome. It is associated, as we all know, um, with the development of ring sideroblasts. It relates to the ineffective erythropoiesis and is considered to have a fairly indolent course. 
the overall survival is on this side. If you have um, either uh, multi-lineage versus single lineage, multi-lineage um, in red, single lineage here, and this is the overall survival um, with SFB3B1 um, according to Bomero Blast. So if you have Blast greater than 5%, you are in red. Um, if you have Blast less than 5%, you are here. And so TP53 allelic states versus clinical outcomes. This is a study that looked at whether you have wild type TP53 or one mutation or multiple hit mutations in TP53. And what they show is that for the overall survival, you actually have a lower survival if you have multiple hit TP53 versus if you only had one mutation in TP53. And this is why um, in the WHO, this was pulled out as biallelic or multiple hit TP53. And that's why they felt this was important to pull out this group. Uh, same thing with AML transformation. Patients with multiple hit TP53 or biallelic TP53 was pulled out and had a higher risk of AML transformation. And this is a very busy slide down here, but what this tried to do was pull everything out and divide it by how high your variant allele frequency was. So in the red and orange lines were the single mutation TP53 divided by a low, medium, and high variant allele frequency. And you can see they do separate. And so I would say the variant allele frequency of a single mutation TP53 is important. Um, there needs to be more study in here, but it does appear that depending on how high your variant allele frequency is, and it appears that in the red line here, a very high variant allele frequency on a single hit TP53 may actually be important prognostically and show to be a poor um, effect. Whereas multiple hit, it really, at that point, doesn't matter. All of the uh, multiple hit TP53 mutations do poorly in this study. And this is a hazards ratios for both overall survival and um, AML transformation. Hazard ratio of two for overall survival and three, uh, almost three, for um, AML transformation for, with multiple hit um, TP53. And so that is why these were pulled out. And so we can classify those um, together, lump them together. And so the, this slide talks about um, the outcomes with therapy-related MDS. And I, I noticed this was a question earlier, um, versus different types of therapy. And in this study, what this looks at is the de novo therapy versus therapy-related and comparing whether or not TP53 was different. And in the solid line is the de novo cases. In the dotted line are the therapy-related. And then they overlaid that with the TP53 mutation status. Whether it is wild-type in black, in orange are the single mutation, in blue are the multiple hit. And you can see that it does not matter if you are de novo or therapy-related TP53 mutations, whether it is um, uh, de novo or therapy, if you have multiple hit. They kind of are right on top of each other. However, if you are a single mutation or if you're wild type, at that point, whether you're de novo or you're therapy related, it does appear to impact your overall survival. So this may need a little bit more because the numbers are, um, 
you know, I don't, I, numbers did not appear to be very high. However, there does appear to be a separation. So I thought this was a very interesting study. And so in the next section, we're going to begin our case-based presentations. This section is supporting the precision care team and risk-adapted MDS management. I'm going to in introduce Dr. Rami Kamrakji, Vice Chair of Malignant Hematology and Section Head of the Leukemia and MDS at H. Lee Moffitt Cancer Center and Research Institute from Tampa, Florida. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the kind introduction. Good morning, everyone. So I'll start with a case. This is a 70-year-old female that presents to clinic with anemia. Um, normal platelets, actually, neutrophils are normal. And there is no clear evidence of nutritional uh, deficiencies by history or, or a history of bleeding. So it's really just pure anemia. Uh, so Cecilia, maybe I'll ask you, like, what tests you would like to have this patient uh, have done even before getting to your diagnostic uh, hardcore testing? Well, our clinicians typically would start with a CBC and a peripheral blood smear. And for, for her, I still would want to see the full iron testing. And um, depending on the MCV, I would go down the microcytic, macrocytic type of workup. Absolutely. So... And I think for this patient, we got those tests. So we had a full CBC, uh, peripheral blood smear, uh, you know, B12, folate, all the iron deficiencies, uh, nutritional deficiencies. And then obviously, uh, if those don't lead to a straight diagnosis or something very clear to treat, then we typically move to a bone marrow. My rules also in general, if somebody have bicytopenias or pancytopenias, it's always a good idea to get a bone marrow. If there are circulating blasts, uh, nucleated red blood cells, all those are in my mind a red flag that even if there is some nutritional deficiency, still to get bone marrow because we see sometimes, you know, uh, you know, somebody that have B12 but still have MDS, for example. And, and the clinical suspicion is always high. In somebody in their 70s, this is like the median age of they're getting MDS. So MDS is really in the top five common causes of anemia in older people. Like, you know, obviously we're looking at iron deficiency, bleeding, maybe renal insufficiency. But MDS is up there as a preclinical suspicion for the disease. So the patient gets a bone marrow and... Those are the slides, and as I said, like I'm not as good, so can you explain to us what you are seeing? Absolutely. There's, there's people in this room that taught me <laughs> MDS. And so uh, on this slide, what we see here in the bone marrow aspirate, which is on the right, we have in the orange circle an uh, um, abnormal-looking megakaryocyte that has a small, and I'm hoping it projects better there, but a small uh, single-lobe megakaryocyte we have in the black black circle, um, abnormal erythroids with a very um, abnormal contoured erythroid with a nuclear lobe that has a um, outcropping. So it's, it's a nuclear lobe bump or a nuclear bud. And then on the left, uh, on the right-hand side, we see a lot of ring sideroblasts that's in a cluster. And not only that, these are dysplastic erythroids that have ring sideroblasts. Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I can tell the sideroblast, right. you know, but like and, the dysplasia is clear there. And uh, another uh, key um, feature here is that there really isn't a lot of blasts. Right. So that that is a, is it in, that is also the other important um, key right. note. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, ring mm -hmm. sideroblast is a dysplastic feature in the right context. I always tell my fellows that it's not like pathognomonic for MDS. And again, like you know. 
there are so many implications for the ring sideroblast. For example, like, you know, in, in most of the cases, you can make an inference that 80 to 90% of those will have the SF3B1 mutation in MDS. Uh, so, like, we talk about, like, globalization of testing. Not every country has the luxury of doing molecular testing. But if you have ring sideroblast, you can make an assumption in 80 to 90% of the cases that those patients, if it is MDS, will harbor the uh, SF3B1. However, there are other causes, obviously. So, here, if I don't have an SF3B1 mutation in ring sideroblast, I'm always looking at copper deficiency. That's the number one thing in my mind, always if you see ring sideroblast. Uh, sometimes there are medications uh, like isoniazide, some of the new VRE treatment uh, that can cause ring sideroblast, severe alcoholism, you know, recover, recovery from chemotherapy. So it's not really just for MDS, but in the right setting, I think it's a kind of, you know, more objective dysplastic criteria that people agree on, as long as the iron stains are done. That's the other thing sometimes we see in reports from outside, that there are no iron stains done on the bone marrow. So this patient gets molecular testing, and can you walk us through the uh, findings on the next generation sequencing? Yes, and so um, this patient demonstrated, and this is a targeted um, panel uh, with two mutations that came up, and these are both pathognomonic. We don't um, report out VOSs, actually, and so just pathognomonic, um, not pathognomonic, um, pathogenic mutations, SF3B1 at H662D, and also a second mutation at HRAS, which was much lower at a variant allele frequency of 5%. So SF3B1 was up at 30, um, almost 30%. Absolutely. So, so those reports are very important, obviously, and nowadays our HEMPATH people sign them. We do have a precision medicine committee that reviews them. But I'll tell you, like, again, for community oncologists that are doing, you know, broad spectrum diseases, uh, it's really very hard for them to interpret those tests. And, you know, those, you know, community oncologists are very skilled physicians. They are, you know, excellent clinicians, but they see somewhere around six to ten MDS cases per year, and they have to keep up with those like molecular testing for every single disease they, they do. So it's not easy. And again, we see a lot of sometimes not great quality NGS samples or misinterpretation. So again, it's very important to have somebody who's specialized. The, the heme path people play a, a pivotal role in reviewing those. So for me, when I look at this, they, they look real to me. The SF3B1, the 662 is not the most common hotspot, but it's a hotspot. SF3B1 should usually most of the time be heterozygotic, not homozygotic, like the VAF should not be like 60%, for example. The NRAS can be seen in association uh, when anything, you know, it's, it's at a low variant LE frequency. So I think those are real and uh, established diagnosis. So based on this, obviously the patient has cytopenia, anemic. The bone marrow is clearly showing some dysplasia and increased ring sideroblast. The patient have SF3B1 mutation. So I think Putting all this together, I think we can, you know, uh, confidently say that this patient has MDS with ring sideroblast or MDS SF3B1 subtype. Whether we are using the WHO or the ICC, I think they fulfill the criteria for the diagnosis. So once we establish the diagnosis, and again, I can't emphasize how crucial is that, the next step is really risk stratification. And in, in reality, what we are trying to do is gauge the risk of the disease to tailor our treatment accordingly. In MDS, our only curative option for those patients is allogeneic stem cell transplant, which if we roughly just think of it, we can cure around 40 to 50% of the patients, but with around 20% transplant-related mortality. So in our mind, it's always, can we justify taking the 20% 
transplant-related mortality in a year or two. If somebody has an estimated survival of 10 years, you cannot justify that risk up front. So the maximum gain in survival in somebody that we label as lower-risk MDS is to delay the transplant. But if somebody has you know, disease that I think that will be you know, endangering their life in two or three years, then we move the transplant earlier on. So that's really the goal. And this is obviously a field that had evolved from the FAB-only classification to the IPSS, the revised IPSS as shown here, and now the IPSSM. And it's again the same principle. It's a little bit different from the classification that here we account for the cytopenias themselves, and the depth of the cytopenia, the blast percentage, and the cytogenetic makeup of the cells, and we come up with a lump score and try to put the patients into two major buckets, although there are like more categories there, as you can see. And even with the revised IPSS, you can see if somebody is a very high risk, those patients, unfortunately, median survival is 0.8 year, while if somebody is a very low risk, their median survival is 8.8 year. And I always like to bring this and like remind everybody, as much as we don't think of MDS, unfortunately, as a life-threatening disease, the outcome for somebody with very high-risk MDS is worse than some of the solid tumors we think of, like metastatic lung cancer or pancreatic cancer even, in, in terms of how life-threatening is this disease. So this is evolving into finally integrating the molecular data. Uh, this was a work by the international uh, group that Dr. Bernard presented, and now it's published in New England Precision, uh, that basically used the backbone of the revised IPSS, so the same variant, the cytopenias, the cytogenetics, the blast percentage. They eliminated the neutrophil as a clinical variable because that's always had been controversial, even what's the impact of the neutrophils. But everything else clinically, blast percentage, cytopenia, cytogenetics, were kept from the revised IPSS, and they added the genetic variables. And, and they divided them into two groups, a main core of uh, gene abnormalities and then additional genetic abnormalities. I think, obviously, going through this, what came out is similar or reflective of what we were discussing in the classification, that there are important abnormalities, the P53 multi-hit, the FLIT3, and another abnormality, which is partial tandem duplication of the MLL, are probably the worst players in, in MDS. Now, again, the FLIT3 is not that common. The MLL-PTD is not that common. Not all you know, labs or NGS panels do you know, test for the MLL-PTD at this point, uh, so, but it's rare. Uh, but obviously, the P53 uh, is very well known, as Cecilia showed in, in several studies now, particularly the multi-hit uh, P53. Now, the other uh, you know, extreme, the SF3B1 mutations, those are the most favorable. If you take clearly an SF3B1 defined whether by ICC or WHO, those patients' median survival is more than 10 years. Their chance to go to leukemia is like 2 to 3%. However, even in the context of the SF3B1, the co-mutations may dictate the outcome. So... Interestingly, if you have a deletion 5Q with SF3B1, those patients don't do as well. If you have a RUNX1 and some of the other mutations as shown here, those patients also don't do well. Uh, so the, our patient that we showed actually had the NRAS, so maybe they are not at the most favorable subtype of the uh, disease. So then again, there is a calculator. We don't memorize this. We plug in those numbers, the cytopenias, the blast, cytogenetics, the molecular information, and the model adjusts for any missing variables. So even if you don't have all the information, you can say not assessed, and it will give you also a range, the, the worst and the best case scenario or, and the mean score of the revised IPSS. 
And it nicely divides patients into six categories. Obviously, the very low, low, uh, and the lower we consider as lower risk, the moderate high, high, and very high we consider as a higher risk. So the zero is really in, in reference to an average patient. So everybody on the right of that is going to be higher risk, and everybody on the left of that is going to be lower risk. So this is the outcome for an average patient, and everything is measured accordingly. So it's really a, a very nice you know, tool. It refines the outcome. Uh, several groups have validated that, including ours, showing that it really restratifies almost half of the patients, most of the time upstaging patients. I think people are like in practice adopting this. Even if you don't have the molecular data fully, like there was a paper looking at just using the IPSSM with just the clinical variables, even without the molecular, because the model allows for continuous blast, continuous blood counts, it actually performs better than the revised IPSS. So you don't have to worry to have all the gene panel that's there. It's still a useful tool for patients. So going back to our patient, actually, like if we calculate her, you know, risk model, she just have anemia, the platelets are good, neutrophils are good, there are no blasts, no bad cytogenetics, SF3B1, maybe she will get into that middle class of the SF3B1, but still in our mind, you know, this patient is going to be a lower risk patient. So historically, our goal in the lower risk is really to alleviate cytopenias for patients, improve anemia, prevent patients to become transfusion dependent, but that's also a moving target. We are starting to think of can we impact the natural history? Can we prevent transfusions happening from the get going? Most of the time, patients can be observed a little bit at the beginning, probably not at this level of hemoglobin, but if somebody's hemoglobin was 11 or 10.5 and they are asymptomatic, we may, may observe in practice, most of the time, if patients' hemoglobin are nine or less, we do start treatment because that's really on the edge of getting to transfusions. And obviously, red blood cell transfusions are still, you know, part of the supportive treatment, but being transfusion dependent is really not a good thing because first, it's always reflective of the biology of the disease. If patients are heavily transfusion dependent, it means that they have a lot of ineffective hematopoiesis, but also a lot of blood transfusions have complications, iron overload, you know, and, you know, uh, fluid overload and, uh, and other, other complications. So we have other options and that's why also you will see that some of the classification and diagnosis now reflects on treatment. So this is like just a big scheme of how I, I manage the disease at this point. Uh, but basically, you know, you can see that in most of the cases, in, in lower risk MDS, in 90% of the cases, we are treating anemia. Uh, in some patients, you know, the concomitant neutropenia or thrombocytopenia can dictate our choice of therapy, but it's not the primary cause of treatment. Rarely, rarely we are treating isolated thrombocytopenia or isolated neutropenia. But you can see, like, even in our algorithm of our management, the first question we are asking, do patients have deletion 5Q? Do patients have ring sidroblast? Because now, del 5Q, we are using leniridomide. Ring sidroblast, we are using lospatercept. Uh, hypoplastic MDS, we think of immunosuppressive therapy. So all what, you know, Dr. Young was discussing now is really trickling into our decision on picking or cho choosing the therapy for those patients. Growth factors like erythroid stimulating agents, uh, erythropoietin form formulations are still used as sometimes a first step. Uh, they have roughly around 30-40% response. We typically try them for eight weeks. If patients are responding, we continue. If not, we should move. Uh, there is unfortunately a lot of, a lot of, you know, not, uh, you know, uh, 
better use of those agents because many times patients will continue on those drugs unnecessarily. Clearly, those medications are not working and patients need alternative and the shift does not happen. So we try to look into that. But roughly around 30 to 40 percent of the patients will start with erythroid stimulating agents and they are a reasonable option. Now, for patients, at least at this point with ring sidroblast, we have a newer treatment approved, which is Luspatercept. Luspatercept is a fusion trap protein that neutralizes TGF-beta ligands. And TGF-beta ligands, you know, t tend to be a negative regulator of the terminal erythroid differentiation. So they are blocking the terminal erythroid differentiation. By neutralizing those ligands, <clears throat> you release the terminal erythroid differentiation. So we call them now erythroid maturating agents. So we have erythroid stimulating agents and we have erythroid maturating agents. And Luspatercept is the first in class it was approved based on a study that was done in patients with ring sidroblast, where it showed, you know, superiority compared to placebo and transfusion independency, almost approaching 40% of the patients. And now this option is available for patients. One of the most predictors of response is really the magnitude of transfusion burden. So if patients were not heavily transfusion dependent, you can see that almost 80% of those patients would respond. So again, you know, I think the earlier introduction of those agents when patients are starting to become transfusion dependent will yield to higher responses. And now this is even moving forward. So there was a study that looked at Luspatercept versus erythropoietin in all comers, but actually patients were stratified, ring sidroblast positive or not. And this is, those were transfusion dependent. The press release on this study that it met the primary endpoint and it's positive. And we are going to be seeing the data at ASCO and DEHA. But this also may move this Luspatercept treatment even upfront uh, in, in the field of MDS. Whether it's going to be in all comers or particularly in ring sidroblast, we have to see the data. There are a lot of practical issues, obviously, with using new drugs that basically we have to maximize the dosing, you know, especially if the patients are, you know, transfusion dependent, we often need higher dosing. Uh, and, you know, the treatment in general is similar to ESA, very well tolerated. Less than 5% of the patients will discontinue. Uh, some fatigue at the beginning. Uh, we monitor the blood pressure, but all over very well tolerated treatment. So, our patient here that we discussed actually was started on ASA, which is probably appropriate, uh, had some response, but after 14 months started needing transfusions again, and around three units per month. Uh, and that's something, as I mentioned, sometimes the community uh, doctors will continue the ASA even beyond the time that clearly it stopped working. So if patients were on erythroid-stimulating agents and their hemoglobin went up and then it started gradually dropping with maximizing the dose, you know, and they just started getting blood transfusion or even before the blood transfusion, in my mind, that's probably ASA failure and we should be moving, not waiting till the patient is to a point where they're getting three units of blood per month. So, and obviously, even starting ESA, there is a simple way for us to look at. We look at the endogenous serum EPO and the magnitude of transfusion. If somebody erythropoietin level is more than 500, or they are getting more than, you know, four units of blood or two units of blood per month, their chances of response to ESA is like 7%, so, or less than 10%. So we really could move to the next step. And, and you'll be surprised that in more than half of the patients in the community, they don't even get endogenous serum EPO level at baseline that we can look at. 
Now, obviously, after ESA failure, as we mentioned, the guidelines now separate if patients have ring sideroblast, if they have deletion 5Q, then the treatment is tailored according to that. This is longer-term follow-up from the medalist study showing the benefit and extension of durability of the response with lispatercept, and patients can have more than a year actually benefit. We see the patients stopping needing blood transfusion. Their hemoglobin goes to the 9, 10 range. Sometimes they go six months without needing a blood, but for some reason, maybe infection or bleeding, they need one transfusion, but then they could have another six or 12 months of an extended benefit of those treatments. By the end of this year or early next year, hopefully we'll get another drug approved for lower-risk MDS called Mtelistat. <clears throat> this is a telomerase inhibitor. In MDS, telomere length is shortened, so by further inhibiting the telomere, it's almost like the synthetic lethality principle. This has been tested in lower-risk. <clears throat> it was tested in a phase one, phase two. Uh, it's an IV drug we give once a month. And <clears throat> the press release of the phase three is also showing that it met the primary endpoint, transfusion independency, durable responses, uh, both in ring sideroblast, non-ring sideroblast, in the heavy transfusion burden patients, and the notion that in 70 to 80% of the patients, there may be change in the allele burden of the SF3B1 and other mutations, that this could be a disease-modifying treatment. Shifting gears a little bit, so, so this covers really the landscape of the lower-risk MDS. And again, I think it emphasizes how much crucial is the diagnosis and risk stratification, but how the importance of, you know, the pathology in, you know, tailoring the treatment, even in the lower risk. Now moving or shifting to the higher risk, so what if this patient have higher risk features? So this is a patient, if, if we assume the same patient with the same cytopenias, but had a history of CLL, and we'll come back to our hempath people to walk us through this. <laughs> All right. Starting with the left panel, we have a core biopsy where we see um, overall a fairly high, um, uh, and so assuming Alice is still 71, uh, we have a very high hypercellular marrow. And then also um, with the patient history of CLL, you actually see, and if we can, actually I'm close enough to the mouse here, you see that little smattering of um, dark cells. Um, actually, I can I can take the mouse. I don't think you can just leave it up here. Yeah, here. So right over here, a smattering of an ill-defined lymphoid aggregate right at the edge there. Um, so that is an ill-defined lymphoid aggregate. So it's a little bit concerning for perhaps a little bit of residual disease involvement. And also here, we're really not seeing any erythroid islands. So maturing erythroid islands are not present. You see some scattered atypical um, megakaryocytes that are hyperchromatic and small. There is one that still has some cytoplasm. But in the middle field, we are um, seeing some orange arrows that are highlighting a few blasts. And then on the right-hand side, you again see some ring sideroblasts in the field. Thank you. So again, like also like ring sideroblasts, once we start getting increased blasts, are actually they, they lose their good prognostic value in a way. And when the blasts are more than five percent, there had been uh, papers looking that actually ring sideroblasts are associated with TP53 mutation. So. As you nicely explained, this patient bone marrow uh, was, you know, hypercellular, increased ring sideroblast, you know, some uh, myeloblasts are also uh, seen. And can you walk us through this? So... So when all of the ancillary studies came back, this patient had a highly atypical, um, very complex abnormal karyotype. 
um, that um, interestingly did not include um, copy neutral or loss of TP53. However, in the myeloid gene panel did have two TP53 mutations, and also in addition to that, a DNMT3A, a CBL, and a PTPN11 mutation. In by CGAT, again, we did not see a copy neutral loss of heterozygosity over the TP53 gene, but there was a gain of uh, 13Q14. Thank you. And like I always tell my fellows, like once you see that complex karyotype, especially if it's enriched with chromosome 5 or 7 abnormality, you can say almost in 80 to 90% this patient will have a P53 mutation. And then obviously this is by both ICC or WHO will be a biallelic, you know, or a multi-hit uh, P53. Similar scenario, a little bit different here that this patient, if we assume that she had a prior history of uterine carcinoma, prior chemotherapy, and now increasing with BLAST. Can you walk us again through those slides? Okay, again, starting from the uh, left-hand side, what we see is um, a uh, shot of an Reigimsa uh, smear. And so what we see here is an atypical megakaryocyte at the top corner that's uh, very small micro-megakaryocyte. And in this field, we actually see a cluster of BLAST in the middle. And so here I would actually be concerned that there are increased blasts. And in the middle field, again, a very hypercellular marrow with atypical megakaryocytes. And there's, again, loss of erythroid island architecture here with increased um, mononuclear cells. And then on the right-hand side, an atypical megakaryocyte, and again, with a few blasts in the field. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so this patient actually have, you know, like more the spectrum of the disease. And again, I think here are shown like the findings, right? The same that the blasts are increased. So this is really clear, you know, obviously even by the older classification, once you get above 20%, this is called AML. Although like therapy related can sometimes be lumped into therapy related MDS slash AML group. And molecular testing for this patient. And so, again, this patient also showed uh, multi-hit TP53 um, and also a very complex karyotype. Um, CGAT was not performed on this patient. Um, however, this patient did not show deletion of um, TP53. Right. And again, complex karyotype, you know, two mutations. <clears throat> by the ICC, actually, even if you have a single P53 mutation by the complex karyotype, it is counted as a multi-hit or biallelic. And, and that had been our experience. Our lab actually don't test for the less of heterozygosity, so we don't get that information. So if we have fish for deletion 17 or minus 17 on the karyotype, we make that assumption as well. So... All right, so if we calculate the IPSSM for this patient, you know, actually those, this patient will, those two patients will be very high risk with a median survival less than a year, unfortunately. So once we get to that point, obviously our first goal is, you know, like thinking of transplant and sending those patients to get to transplant because allogeneic stem cell transplant is the only curative option for those patients. And the maximum gain of survival for somebody with this high risk is to go to transplant uh, as soon as we can. There is controversy always, should we go, can we go to transplant directly? Should we do treatment before transplant? Uh, and that's obviously a different topic, but our first goal is to think of transplant for those patients. And this is a recent study that looks on randomizing patients between donor and no donor, uh, which is just the best way probably to look at the transplant uh, benefit. And it definitely clearly shows even if patients just have a donor uh, with that intent to transplant, that their outcomes are better. 
So the question of going to transplant, obviously, with or without treatment, is a very open area for debate, uh, but clear there are predictors of outcome after transplant. The myeloblast increased, the cytogenetic abnormalities, and nowadays we know the molecular stuff. So as you know, like, all the transplant, even by the registrates, required to have a bone marrow done like 30 days prior to transplant. And we look at all those variables, and those are the things that predict, you know, outcome after transplant. So in our experience, if you have a detectable P53 abnormality, particularly if that variant allele frequency is high, going to transplant, there could be almost 70 to 80% chance of recurrence in the first year. So sometimes I find it ethically hard to push through unless we really discuss with the patient clearly what to expect, that the chance of cure is only 20%. They really have to understand that. And our efforts in trials and treatment before transplant is really to try to bring new medications to try to bring that allele burden before or clear the p53 mutation and this is some obviously small numbers but our data taking patients to transplant if they clear the p53 and this is standard ngs this is not even mrd so just going below the 10 or 5 percent level and you can see that their outcomes are way better than not in patients that do not clear the P53, I'm not sure that we are even seeing in our data the, the impact of the transplant. So again, just emphasizing the importance of how we are even factoring those molecular testing in the decisions to take patients to transplant or how to tailor the treatment before and even considering after transplant. Now, in, in reality, a lot of patients are not eligible of tra to transplant because of the comorbidities, age. So our mainstay are those hypomethylating agents. So we have azacitidine, decitabine, approved for many years. The original studies showed around two years survival in higher risk MDS. The real world data has never been able to even duplicate that two year. In the SEER data, the median survival for those patients is around a year. In our uh, database, it's somewhere around 17 to 20 months, but in a way that's biased. So, so really an area of unmet need that we really need to do better than a year, year and a half expected survival for those patients. And when those azacitidine or decitabine stop working, the average survival for patients is only four to six months. Now we started having some oral medications. So decitabine that we've been using for many years as IV is available as oral medication, uh, almost 100% bioavailable. So patients can take a pill actually that's equivalent exactly to the decitabine that makes it easier. Uh, it can propose its own challenges because the co-pays on oral medications are different for patients than IV medications, uh, but it still have the same effect. It's myelosuppressive, so we stress to patients that they have to come weekly to check blood tests and uh, get you know, uh, the monitoring. And what we are moving into is hopefully to change the the, 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 the standard of treatment to have doublets or triplets with the backbone of hypomethylating agents. And there had been several trials, I'll just mention two as a flavor for this, uh, where we are moving to, and the two studies that we are really, by the end of this year or early next year, waiting on the readout of phase three that could change the uh, landscape of the treatment. So one of the approaches is, is really adding, you know, treatments or immune checkpoint inhibitors to hypomethylating agents. And there had been several trials with the PDL1, PDL1, one inhibitors with limited success, but the one that we've really had seen successes in phase one and two is the CD47 
blocking approach. So as you know, CD47 is a, uh, a receptor. We call it the don't eat me signal. So it's expressed on cells that prevent the macrophages from engulfing the cells. If you block the CD47, you'll allow the macrophages to engulf the cells. And this turns to be overexpressed in MDS cells and in leukemia cells. So by that targeting that, you are having a, a kind of a, you know, immune checkpoint inhibitor using the macrophages. There has been phase one, phase two studies showing almost doubling of the response rates to uh, azacitidine, a little bit more durable responses, and the most important uh, <coughs> finding that it seems to be agonistic of the mutations. So patients with P53 responses and durability of response seems to be equivalent. So now this is finished phase three. We are waiting on the readout. If that's positive, it will lead to the approval. There is no request of like staining for the CD47 so forth or something like that, but there is some request for like blood typing for those patients. It's similar to what we have with like daratumumab in multiple myeloma, so it needs special blood banking. The main side effect of those CD47 antibodies, and there are like several of them in development now, is hemolysis on target because the mature red blood cells express CD47. So when you treat at the beginning, you have to ramp up the dose, you see a lot of hemolysis, and, and then go from there. The other drug that's in uh, development is venetoclax. This is a drug now approved for AML, but we use it in MDS. The data looks promising, doubling again the responses. I think what's, again, going back to the molecular, the P53 that's really, uh, we discussed, have poor outcome, doesn't seem to benefit from the addition of the venetoclax in, in, in this setting. But this is a common therapy we see. The ASA venetoclax had become standard of care in AML patients that are not eligible for intensive chemotherapy. But what we see in the community that, again, you know, people were used to do azacitidine for four rounds and then repeat a bone marrow to assess the response. And sometimes they are doing the same. We, we emphasize that, you know, the evaluation for the bone marrow should be done very early in those patients with aza venetoclax. Like in the first month, we repeat the bone marrow. Many times those patients' bone marrow is hypocellular and the blasts are gone. So we tell the patients to hold the treatment till recovery and then we re restart. I've seen, unfortunately, patients coming, getting four rounds of aza ven full dosing. The, the, there was no repeat of a bone marrow, and the patients come almost with ablated bone marrow fungal infections. So it's important also to bring it up to the clinicians that maybe we should be looking at bone marrows earlier when we are doing ASAVEN. And again, there is a phase three trial that finished accrual in MDS. Uh, the treatment is available in AML. And, and what Cecilia was discussing, this now gray zone of 10% blast or more that we can call AML, MDS, sometimes actually is helping us clinically to get some of the drugs that are approved by the FDA for AML to borrow and treat for MDS. So in summary, I think we have new proposed MDS classifications. I do think they are improvement and they are recognition of the biology. We have a newer uh, risk assessment tool that I think also uh, refines our prognostic ability and tailoring the treatment accordingly. We do have newer treatments in, in, uh, in lower risk MDS. Linalidomide and deletion 5Q is moving earlier. I, you know, we didn't go through the data, but you know, now we don't have to wait for the patients are transfusion dependent. We have a new option for patients with uh, ring sidroblast with lispatercept. A newer treatment can be approved called Mtelistat. In the higher risk, at this point, still hypomethylating agents are our standard of care, uh, but we have them as oral now, and hopefully using them as a backbone for future doublets or triplets, and thinking of allogeneic stem cell transplant as curative option for all patients. With that, 
I would stop and I think we'll be taking questions. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Um, so we have quite a lot of questions. So the question, are we starting to treat MDS much earlier with new MDS AML classification? And do we have enough evidence for this approach? To some extent, yes, obviously. Now, even in the CCUS, we have, at least on trials, uh, the best evidence is probably in deletion 5Q with this RevCentra study, when we don't wait for the patients to become transfusion dependent. And the other extreme is this, what I was mentioning, when the blasts are more than 10%, some of them now are starting to include those patients in an approach similar to AML. So what would you recommend for TP53 multi-hit MDS? Right, so the question, how do we treat multi-hit P53? I think first, the, really, if there is a clinical trial, those patients should be all treated on clinical trial. Uh, as I mentioned, those patients actually don't benefit at at least from the Aza-Venetoclax combination, unless maybe for a higher response to go to transplant. So we don't recommend generally using Venetoclax for all P53 mutant. If they are going to transplant, we recommend going to a clinical trial or hypomethylating agents to decrease the allele burden. And we encourage those patients to go on maintenance clinical trials after. And I think um, Rami just answered, what are the treatment implications if you diagnose MDS AML as per ICC? Because that allows you um, to provide some of the treatments um, for AML. Absolutely. So that's great. Uh, would co-occurrence of SF3B1 with less favorable mutations change the way you treat LRMDS with, uh, with anemia? That's actually a good question, but uh, in, in most of the cases, no, because even the least favorable still have good outcome. And when you look at the data from the medalists, the concomitant mutations did not impact much the response rates. So we still treat them as lower risk, just realizing that their outcome is a little bit less favorable. So the next question, how long should we wait to see a response to ESAs before changing therapy. Right. So I think there are two parts of this. So it's always helpful to check the baseline. So if you get endogenous serum APO level and the magnitude of transfusion burden, you actually could all the way skip the use of ESA because the chance is going to be very low. Typically, we say 8 to 12 weeks. I sometimes go to the highest dose from the get going. But after 8 to 12 weeks, if there is no response, we move to the next step. Okay. And in your opinion, what is the optimal time frame for conducting bone marrow flow cytogenics and NGS in order to confirm a diagnosis? I'll defer that to you. <laughs> yeah, so, so this is interesting. I think it depends on, uh, first of all, if it's a de novo presentation or if it is a uh, referral. And also um, whether the patient is... Um, I guess in a de novo presentation, how critically ill the patient is. If the patient is already um, presenting in a fairly sick state, then obviously you want to do that um, more rapidly. I think a lot of times you are limited by how um, fast your laboratories are in cytogenetics and molecular testing. In most places, I know according to the CAP um, guidelines, they recommend that you sign out within 10 days your molecular testing. In cytogenetics, I know that some cytogenetics lab can actually have a very rapid turnaround time in um, both the karyotype and fish. And so in these days, I think um, within two weeks would be fairly reasonable. Absolutely. So there are a couple of questions. Assessing response on magro to ASA, it happened ongoing at two, four, six months. Uh, and some of the responses, the best response 
can increase with time because the criteria require a complete count recovery, hemoglobin even in MDS actually above 11, to call it as a CR. So sometimes patients' blast will go down and, you know, below 5%, but their hemoglobin is 10.5. You cannot call that a complete response, but in two months they will be. So it was ongoing. And the related question, do we stain? The study actually did not require staining for CD47. So uh, I think it's highly expressed in the MDS-AML patients. All right. And so do we want to tackle some of the other questions on the bottom here? Yes, we have two minutes. All right. So how to effectively collaborate with precision care teams to develop guideline-based treatment plans? I think what we did now is illustration of that is really like, I think hopefully this emphasizes the message of the importance of diagnostics, molecular testing, and how sophisticated is this? Like I just do MDS for, you know, living and I can barely keep up with this. We have precision medicine committee. We have like, you know, people that interpret those results. And maybe you can walk us through like what you do because you are telling me like how well organized the flow for those things and how you invested to get one report together. Right. Um, And so at Fred Hutchin University of Washington, we um, have organized a couple of things that uh, we do together. Number number one, we have um, developed a pathway system, which is kind of governed by a committee of hematologists, oncologists, in addition to pathologists, which determine what testing all of our patients would get, depending on if they're de novo, if they're referral. And that is a pathway that ensures all of our patients gets the ancillary test that is needed for their care. That's one. Another is an integrated reporting. In integrated reporting, we ensure that our oncologists get in a single report, um, you know, what the synopsis of that patient for that time point and all of the ancillary tests. And so the final answer of like, what does this mean for your patient at this time point? And so I think those are helpful tools. In addition, we also have um, kind of across the board an interest group, myelodysplastic syndrome interest group, which comprises of researchers, um, hematologists, oncologists, as well as pathologists. And so that, I think, is really nice to have an interest group together for both the research purpose as well as clinical care. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's important. We have like a weekly myeloid conference where we have hempath, molecular, flow, and the clinicians. We review every new case at least, you know, and uh, we try to integrate that. We've been having discussions how even they are going to sign the new reports because obviously you get the aspirate biopsy early on, but there is lag to get the NGS by the ICC, WHO, and I think this integration of one report is, is a solution for that. All right, I think we are at time. Um, thank you very much. Perfect. <laughs> this activity is certified by PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash UKX860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol Myers Squibb.